God is good. All the time. Welcome, CM, and welcome to everyone who joins us online. As is my custom, I will be taking the month of December off from going deeper to focus on my Christmas messages. Christmas at Christ Church is an incredible opportunity to present the gospel to thousands of people, many of whom do not come to church at any other time in the year. And I really spend the early part of December just preparing and praying and getting ready to present those messages. So for those of you that pray, you know, I believe that prayer plants dynamite, evangelism detonates it. So let's start planting some dynamite here about Christmas Eve. I call it Christmas Eve, but the reality is we have a gazillion services and only about half of them are on Christmas Eve. But I think we now call it Christmas at Christ Church. There you go. So be praying about these services. Let's, let's pray that God does something. By the time I return, our worship leader, Josh Gillum, will have moved on to the next stage in his life. I'm deeply grateful to Josh for his leadership. I truly wish he and Sarah God's very best. Though our worship leader will change, the people up here, not so much. Uh, they're a part of the service and a part of what we are doing. Also, what's not going to change at all is the simple format of this Wednesday service. It's worship and it's word. That's it. That's what we do. Worship and word. My metaphor for the Wednesday service was that it would be a midweek service where people, if you think of people like phones, could come and recharge. Just could come and recharge. I always think of Sunday mornings as being this, and Wednesday nights as being this. Just this. So we're going to keep that piece of this service. Next week, Reverend Carmen will lead a service of worship and testimony. And it'll just be a service of thanksgiving. And the next week, our adult education director, Kevin Siddle, will be coming in during the whole month of December. He'll be leading us in a brand new series from the Christmas narrative in Matthew. And it's simply called Beginning. I think the one constant in life is change. I think it's the one constant in life. But... Uh, I want you to know that I cannot tell you how pleased I am that we offer this Wednesday night service. I cannot tell you how much this service means to me personally. And I look forward every week to being here with you all. And I also want to say thank you to all of you who join us online from all over the country, even around the world. Because you're very much a part of this church as well. So, with that, we got some ground to cover. I went to high school in an iconic southern Illinois football town called DuCoin. Back in those days, you didn't start playing football when you were a little kid. Uh, you didn't start peewee football 
when you were a little kid. In fact, you really didn't start playing football until the summer right before you entered high school. It was sort of the first thing you did in high school was you went to football practice. The first thing they did, one of the very first things they did was teach us the basic American skill of throwing a football. How many of you can throw a football, Parody Ball? How many of you do not throw a football terribly well? They taught us this basic American skill. And I know now why they taught it to us. I mean, you think about it, you only need two or three quarterbacks, right? The reason the coaches taught it to us is so they wouldn't look like idiots. So that when we were warming up and somebody threw a ball, that it looked good. The coaches did this for this very reason, I'm sure of it. The coaches showed us how to grip the ball, how to get your arm back, how to follow through. We all learned how to throw a football. Though we had very few people in games who actually threw a football. We all knew the motion. And at times, we would just practice with the ball. But the reality is, no matter how good your motion looks, no matter how smooth you look with a football in your hands, you really don't know how it's going until you actually throw the ball. You can know all the theory in the world, but it really doesn't matter until you throw the ball. Then you see what you got. You can take all the lessons and get all the reps in the world, but until you throw the ball, you really don't know where you are. You know, when you threw the ball, if the ball came out of your hand like a wounded duck, wobbling nowhere near where you intended for it to go, the assumption was you were doing something wrong. On the other hand, if a beautiful spiral came out, the ball had something on it, right where you wanted it to be, the assumption was you were doing something right. In football, if you were doing the wrong things in your motion, nothing good was going to happen when you let go of the ball. Conversely, if your motion was good, then good things were going to happen when you let go of the ball. You know, you, you, you had to give it time, but you trusted the process. You trusted the process. And a part of the process is understanding if you do the right things the right way, you will get the right results in the right time. To this point in Colossians, Paul's been discussing Jesus in a very theological, may I even say theoretical way? He's kind of been taking people through the motion of throwing the football. He heard the church had kind of picked up some hinges in his throwing motion. He's been offering practical instruction about how to return to good form. And all of his instructions have to do with the sufficiency of Christ. His reoccurring thing is you got to get all of that other stuff flying around out of your head, and you need to get back to Jesus. If there's a prophetic word for the church today, I would think it would be get all that other stuff that's flying around your head out of your mind and get back to Jesus. You got all kinds of stuff flying about, but Jesus is all you need. So let's double back for a moment and hit our big four reign of freedom themes. Number one, we were captives to sin. Sin is a self-inflicted disease. We're born into it, but boy, do we 
roll right into it quickly. We were captives to sin. Number two, we were captives to religion. We were captives to religion. We thought following the rules and regulations is what made you right with God. Number three, then we discovered it's only Jesus that set you free. What's he set us free from? Sin and religion. Sin and religion. You need to understand, religion is a loser's play. You'll never be good enough. You never keep all the rules. You never be perfect. No matter how you try, religion is a loser's play. Only Jesus can set us free. So if you think of sin as the disease, religion is the wrong medicine, Jesus is the right medicine. And now we get to number four, which is a massive claim. Sin is now held captive. We were the captives, but Jesus has imprisoned sin itself. The disease is eradicated. This book was written by Paul from prison to the church, mid-60s A.D. Paul may have died in 64 A.D. They may have executed him in 68. Could have been somewhere in between. In the absence of a formal New Testament, and with Christianity spreading all over the Roman Empire, teaching about the life of Jesus and the implications of his life varied. I mean, it varied greatly from church to church and from teacher to teacher. Paul and many of his letters are written to address a very specific set of errant beliefs. We might call them wobbly passes. And what he's trying to bring about is orthodoxy, correct belief, perfect spirals. And it all has to do with the person of Jesus Christ. You see, Paul's not real worried about religion because he knows that if you get Jesus right, you've got everything right. And if Jesus is wrong, everything is wrong. He's trying to get us back to Jesus. This part of the letter concerns the living out or the proper execution of our Christian faith. This is intensely practical. So the bottom line is this. What we believe about Jesus changes the way we live. What we believe about Jesus changes the way we live. One of the things the student, the serious student of the Bible has to deal with is its eternal nature and its unwavering ethic. The Bible is unconcerned with our politics and our cultural sensibilities. The Bible's utterly unconcerned. You say, you mean the Bible's not concerned about the cultural sensibilities and the policy, politics of 2023? No, but if it makes you feel any better, it wasn't concerned about those things in 1023, and it won't be in 3023 either. The Bible's bigger than all of that stuff. The Bible is either the book of books containing the eternal, immutable word of God, or it's a book among books. And that's what we have to decide. We live in a time when pseudo-theologians on big platforms are claiming that Christians have read the Bible wrong for centuries and that they have new insight because they are the smartest people who've ever lived. Their play is, let me tell you why the Bible doesn't say what it clearly says. That is their play. Let me tell you why the Bible doesn't say what it clearly says. We have to understand that this is an old, 
predictable and demonic play. If we refuse to allow the Bible to transform us, we'll be forever trying to get the Bible to conform to our politics or our way of thinking. I'm going to say some religious traditions today have literally hijacked the Bible. They've hijacked it. They use pieces and parts of it to support their sensibilities or their politics. I need to tell you, the Bible does not work for us. It's not our servant. It's not ours to do what we wish with. The Bible's the word of God. It's how God speaks to us most accurately, most plainly, most clearly. And the Bible's intent is to transform us. Don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the Spirit of God. That is the message of the Bible. We have to decide. Does God speak through the Bible? Or is the narrative of this present day somehow more authoritative? But I do want to give you this warning as you got to make up your decision because I think Christians have to do two essential things. The first thing you got to do is you got to decide whether or not to accept Jesus. Is Jesus who he said he is? Is he? And can you trust him for your eternity? That's number one. The second thing you got to decide is what to do with the Bible. You got to decide, is this the authoritative word of God? Is my life going to be based upon its clear and consistent teaching or not? Those are very important decisions. They're the kind of decisions that guide us throughout our life. And just to help you out a little, I want to be really clear. The Bible will still be alive and well when we are dead and forgotten. So for me and my house, we're going to go with the Bible. We're just going to go with the Bible. And I believe the Bible says what it says. And if I disagree with the Bible, my default is it's me who is in error. Today we're going to explore the first four verses of Colossians 3. I'll be back in January to wrestle with the very specific moral and ethical implications surrounding these four verses. Always remember that my task as a trail guide is never to give my opinion or espouse my theology. My task is to make the author's message as clear to us as it was to the original audience. Paul is writing to a Roman empire, larger culture, that's showing early symptoms, in my opinion, of the disease that killed it. There's all kinds of debate as to what brought down the Roman empire. But I see early symptoms of what broke down the empire happening right now, hundreds of years before the empire finally imploded. For me, the family unit, the basic building block of the culture was being unraveled by a perverse, sexually charged, morally bankrupt, ethically corrupted, and drug-induced culture. This initial decay was led by the cultural elite and the emperor himself. Does anything sound familiar to you? 
is warning the church not to follow the larger culture down that path. You're not going to like where that path leads. That is not the Jesus path. That is the path of this world. Always remember, Paul is not talking to the general public. He's talking to the Christians. He's not talking to everyone everywhere when he writes this letter. He's talking to the Christians in Colossae. He said, how many people do you think Paul was actually writing to? Could have been approximately the same number of people we have in this room. How's that? Colossae is a declining city. He's just writing to the Christians there. There's no indication the church was huge and thriving. There may just have been as many people as we have in this room who were that original audience. He's talking to Christians. Well, that means he's talking to us. Now, everybody, us. So Paul's given us 12 claims about Jesus. I, I, I want to go over these because this is the big theme of the Bible. So we're just going to hit them real quick. Number one, Jesus is God. We understand God in three persons. Jesus is one of them. Number two, Jesus was the catalyst of creation. He was and is and is to come. Number three, Jesus is supreme over creation. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. Number four, Jesus is the head and the church is his body. You see, if it isn't Jesus' church, it's not a church. It's not a church. Number five, Jesus reconciles us with God. It's the work of Christ, not religion or special knowledge that squares us up with God. It's Christ and Christ alone. Number six, now some of you are going to need to stay with me here. Jesus makes us holy and blameless before God. You say, well, you have no idea what I've done. You have no idea what my past looks like. I don't. I don't. But I can tell you this. When God sees you, he does not see the foolish soul once in need of rescue. He sees your perfect rescuer. He makes us holy and blameless before God. So I just got a word to some of you who feel less than holy. And you've been carrying blame your whole life. I've just got a word for you. Start seeing yourself like God sees you. And you know a good start to a day would be this. Wake up in the morning before you had the chance to do anything stupid at all. <laughs> Wake up in the morning and look in the mirror and say, I am holy and blameless before God. Get a stick it note. Stick it on your mirror. I am holy and blameless before God. And then go out there and live like it. Number seven, Jesus invites us to walk with him. We don't just receive Christ. We're to abide with him. Isn't that kind of weird? Jesus wants to hang out with us. I can barely stand myself sometimes. <laughs> and Jesus wants to hang out with us. Number eight, Jesus roots us. That's what we're doing tonight, right? We get rooted. We're not just to receive Christ. We're not just knowing about Jesus. We also need to know about the Bible. We need to know the, the word of God, the, the Bible roots us. Jesus saves us. The Bible roots us. Number nine, Jesus unlocks all God has for us. 
He unlocks everything God has for us. Number 10, Jesus empowers us. Did you know that God will never ask us to do what he's not equipped and empowered us to do? That's why you can go with your pings. When God gives you a ping, you can go with it because God will never ask you to do what God has not empowered you to do. Number 11, Jesus forgives sin. How's that? He eradicates sin from our life. That's unbelievable. He forgives sin. And number 12, Jesus vindicates us. He vindicates us. Reward comes to the righteous. And now we finally get to some new ground. Claim number 13, Jesus gives us a new perspective. Verse 1, since you've been raised to new life with Christ, set your sights, verb, Melissa, set your sights on the realities of heaven where Christ sits in the place of honor at God's right hand. Jesus is, I mean, Paul's continuing the early metaphor of baptism. You got to remember, baptizo, the, the image is that you, you take somebody in their sin, right? It's a metaphor. They, they're in their sin, and then you drown them in the water, and then you pull them up to a new life. Sinner goes down, dies, and is resurrected to new life. The person that comes up wasn't the person that went in. There's an old story about a revival meeting in the American frontier, particularly nefarious sinner in the community came up front, and they were having a baptismal service, and to everyone's shock, the person professed their faith and agreed to be baptized. The revival preacher took the person and held him under the water. And a woman yelled from the crowd, hold him under longer, preacher. I'm not sure he's dead yet. <laughs> we die to sin. And we're resurrected to a new life. That person you were before Jesus forgave you doesn't exist anymore. That person's dead. You've been resurrected to new life. Did you know every time we repent of our sin, we're sort of baptized all over again. We die to our sin. And that sinner's dead, gone. And we are resurrected to new life. For Paul, the person who comes out of the water isn't the same person that went in. And, and how are we different when we come out? We look the same. Right? We look the same. So how are we really different? We now have our sights set upon heaven. It doesn't mean we disregard the necessary aspects of living. It just means we now have a different end game. Our sights are set on something else entirely. The center of our reality has shifted from earthly things toward heavenly Things. From the temporal to the eternal, from the ordinary to the holy. And where is this eternity located? Where a triumphant Jesus sits at the right hand of God the Father. That's where that's happening. Verse 2. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. Think different. I need you to hear this tonight. When you ask Jesus to forgive your sin, can I quote 1 John 1, 9, even though we're not in 1 John? 
If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When you truly repent of your sin, God forgives you because of the work done by Jesus Christ. You are forgiven. God forgets that sin. It is taken off of the record. And you stand before God blameless and holy. We got to start acting like it and we got to start thinking like it. You got to understand who you are and then live into it. Live into it. Think about the things of heaven, not the things of earth. This verse represents a choice. We can live according to the values of Jesus, where we become rich by giving and great by serving, and we live by dying to self. This is a whole new way of thinking. It's a whole new way of living. We choose to live Jesus' way, even when it makes no sense to us at all. Jesus said it best in another watery metaphor from John chapter 3, you must be born again. I think of heaven as unbroken communion with God. You know, there's a lot of descriptions of heaven and metaphors of heaven, but I don't think of heaven materially, you know? Streets of gold, okay, but that's not what I think of when I think of heaven. I think of unbroken communion with God. I want you to kind of think about this for a second. It's a whole new way of thinking. You know, in the same way that heavy rain on a satellite dish kind of interrupts your signal. Our mortality and our sin limits and disrupts our connection with God. And even with that, there are times when we truly are in union with God. Have you ever had a a period of time, maybe even just a few seconds, where it felt like there was no separation between you and God? It was a, a perfect moment of worship. If you've ever experienced that, you don't want to leap. You you don't want to stop that communion with God. During this earthly life, we experience God in hints and rumors and echoes and tastes and glimmers. But one day, one day we will shed our earthbound shells and we will forever live in the fullness of God. Greatest moments that can be experienced in this world will pale in comparison to the perpetual joys of heaven. The perpetual joys of heaven. During seminary, I occasionally played golf at FDR's Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Are you guys aware that he lived part of the time in Warm Springs, Georgia? The church that I pastored during seminary was about six miles from Warm Springs in Manchester, Georgia. And there was a little golf course there that FDR had built. And I would play golf there because they let preachers play free, and that's what I could afford. (laughs) And on occasion, I would go play with our doctor. Uh, Our main doctor was an older guy, which means he's younger than I am now, Uh, but... The other guy was, was my age, 
and we would occasionally play golf together. Me because it was free, him because he could afford it. We would walk nine holes, and when we played, we would cover innumerable topics ranging from sickness to health and heaven and earth. We only played a handful of times, but uh, we had some good conversations. He was on the agnostic side. One day, I was trying to share faith with him, and he said something I didn't see coming. He said, Shane, one problem I have with faith comes from my personal observations of people as they die. So many Christians seem as afraid to die as unbelievers. Am I missing something? Or shouldn't your faith give them hope for what lies beyond? And then he said something I'll never forget. Why would a true Christian fear death? It was really an excellent question. It still is. Why would a true Christian fear death? The reason many Christians fear death is because we set our sights too low. We set our sights too low. We believe in heaven, but we essentially function like non-believers. We live our lives as, as though everything is going to be contained in time and space. Our sights are set too low. Our sights are set too low. It's only when we look up at heaven that the fear of death is vanquished and our eternal hope in Christ is unleashed. Verse 3, for you died to this life and your real life is hidden in Christ with God. You know, with the emergence of AI, people are having more and more difficulty determining what is real. You know, not like when I was a kid. And when I was a kid, there were people out there that thought Ellie Mae Clampett was a real person. But there's always been those folks. But this is different. You know, throughout my life, I've always believed none of what I hear and half of what I saw. It served me pretty well. Except lately, now I believe none of what I hear and none of what I see. Well, that's not great. I mean, it's really not great. And I am sure with another election cycle coming up, and AI out there, things are going to get really, really bad. And we're going to be completely unable to tell what is true and what is false, what is real and what is not real. You say, with all this stuff coming out, do you think this might be an indication of the nearness of the end times prophesied in the Bible? And to that, I would simply respond, duh. For Paul, it's only when we detach from the false reality of the values and vantage point of this world that we can enter into the true reality in Christ. Did you know these human shells of ours come with a shelf life? They come with a shelf life. You know? And they grow for a certain amount of time. And then they sort of hang on for a bit and then they eventually begin to decline. Unlike, for example, a hostess Twinkie, which I'm pretty sure is going to stay the same for thousands of years. You know, you can diet and exercise, you can plug and dye your hair, you can 
have them inject like fillers in your face. You can have a tanning bed make you exquisitely orange all winter, but it, it just delays the inevitable. No matter how hard we fight it, aging and eventual death is going to catch up with all of us. You can't outrun it. And as you get older, you keep running slower and slower. <laughs> People of faith do well to remember that physical life on this earth is not our real life at all. It's not our real life at all. Christians believe that humans are eternal beings. And we refer to the eternal part of us as our souls. When I was a kid, no one ever said, Jesus saved my body. They always said, Jesus saved my soul. The mortal part of us is, is perishable. It's like keeping vegetables in the fridge. It's just perishable. But our souls are eternal. That is the eternal part of us. And Paul is going to argue that our, our mortality is not our real life. It's this life, but it's not our true life. Our real life is the life we live in Christ. It's really interesting to me that theologically speaking, when you ask Jesus to come into your life, when you ask Jesus to forgive you of your sin and make you a Christian, it initiates a relationship that changes your eternal trajectory. And that relationship is so powerful that human death is not even a speed bump on the time continuum. It's pretty remarkable, really. When we embrace Christ... When we start doing things his way, when we start thinking his way, we are living into our real lives. Our real lives. In verse 4, and when Christ, who is your life, is revealed to the whole world, you will share in his glory. And now for the good news. What was previously occluded by our sinful nature, what you couldn't see, what was hidden from us is revealed in Christ. It is revealed to the whole world in the glorious person of Jesus Christ. Sharing in his glory is our end game. And where does it start? It starts by asking Jesus to come into our lives. You say, that's too easy. It's easy for us, but it was hard for Jesus. He paid an unbelievable price for our sin. For me, becoming a Christian is just realizing that you were loved by God. You're loved by God. There's nothing you can do to make God love you any more. There's nothing you can do to make God love you any less. You are unconditionally loved by God. But we've all sinned. We're born into it. And then we make things worse. And every one of us is guilty of sin. We are all straight up sinners. Every single one of us. The best of us, the worst of us. We are all straight up sinners. It's what we share in common. But God loved us so much that he sent Jesus to die for us. He paid the price for our sin. He affected the opportunity for us 
to be made right with God. And all we have to do is repent of our sin. Ask Jesus to come into our lives. And that begins a journey. I want to be very clear. It's not the end of the journey. It's just the beginning. I don't know if you've ever tried out for something. And then they made you wait. And then you find out if you made it or not. Uh, I remember when I was a kid, we would try out for a sport. And then they would say, at 9 o'clock on Saturday, we'll, we'll put the roster. Who made the team on, on the locker room door? And everybody would have to drive to the high school to see if you made the team. When you made the team, that wasn't the end of the thing. It was the start of the thing. It was where you began the process. Accepting Jesus isn't the end of the thing. It's the start of the thing. And you say, well, what's the start of? An eternal relationship with a creating God. It's entirely made possible through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He will forgive your sin. He will make you blameless and holy. And he will set you off on a journey. But yeah, now we live in sputters and spurts. Like an engine in a car that doesn't run real well. But there will be a day. In God's time. And we will go from our weakness to strength. And we will live forever in perfect communion with God. That's the end game. And it can start tonight for you. If you want it to. The question dating back to the fall itself is how does humanity reconnect with our creator some people will tell us that we find God through human goodness and others say no we find God through religion or some mystical enclave of it but Paul's telling the Colossians all these people are wrong we don't need any stuff at all there's a consistent teaching in the New Testament but though our knowledge is presently limited, all things will eventually be revealed in Christ. What is hidden will one day be discovered, and what is secret will one day be revealed. Paul is proclaiming that that day has arrived. Real life is not discovered through exclusive knowledge or good behavior or angel worship or some type of religious mysticism. It's not where it's found. What is the secret to find in real life? Drum roll, please. Jesus. Jesus is all you need. He's all you've ever needed. He's all you need now. And he's all you'll ever need. I find that to be incredibly good news. Incredibly good news. Happy Thanksgiving. We'll pick up the trail in 2024.